0: This is The Playbook. This is Dave Meltzer with Entrepreneurs The Playbook. And man, am I excited. I have the incredible Deb Lou here with me. She is the CEO and president of the extraordinary company Ancestry. But she has written a new book that I believe releases today, if I'm not uh, incorrect. It's August 9th for those of you. And this book is extremely exciting because it takes an old topic Uh, which is taking back your power. Uh, As you know, probably I'm 54 years old, I probably have seen more women talk about taking back their power. But what I love about your approach is you have 10 new rules for women at work. Uh, And I believe since, you know, the 70s and 80s, when women were taking back their power, and even in the 50s, with Rosie the Riveter, that there's been a few changes in the workplace that probably needs a little bit of adjustment, or as Dave Uh, uh, the says, rethinking these 10 new rules uh, for women at the workplace. Welcome, Deb, to the playbook.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: It's so cool. Um, You know, the one first question I want to ask is, as CEO of a company of Ancestry, which is based off of, you know, I believe, what I call finding our human nature, uh, Mm -hmm. by looking into history and looking to the past We can see human nature and energetic and genetic inheritance and human nature really doesn't change, but everything around us does. And I think a lot of the issues that you write about in your book have to deal with human nature uh, and the history of human nature of how this has all evolved to today, where our workforce and our workplaces have changed dramatically. Why would the CEO of Ancestry write a book about? women at work and create this rule book to help women particularly what was your motivation
1: you know it's interesting I actually started this book about three and a half almost four years ago and I've been the CEO of Ancestry for 18 months but it actually is really kind of tied to my experience and kind of you know when I open the book I tell a story of how when I was small about six years old my mom told me that I was really lucky that my dad was okay with having only girls and I just remember thinking, you know, I come from a culture as you know, um, that has a very strong ma- male dominance in the, in the family line. And, you know, you want a son to carry on your family name. And, you know, my dad had seven living brothers and sisters, all of whom had sons and, you know, it was just, she, and when she told me that I was like, what does it mean? Only a girl you know? And I realized from a very young age, we kind of acculturate to these things and it just becomes a story of our life. And I talk about, you know, th- that my grandmother is one of the fiercest women I know and my mother and, you know, came to America. My father and mother came to America separately, and they both had a couple suitcases and a few hundred dollars, and they made life in a country they'd never been to, not knowing if they could ever go home. And so, you know, it's really tied to how closely I feel to my own family and my extended family, but also to the story of the women in the workplace, which is the incredible women who brought us to where we are today. My grandmother, who never had a formal education and had seven kids. My other grandmother also, who has nine kids. And, you know, and kind of where we are today and and how much progress we made but how much progress we still need to make as well
0: yeah there's a lot of things that need to be unlearned you're looking at a middle-aged white male and i uh, was with my friends that i met in the 70s in elementary school and we're at a wedding and i'm like man do we have a lot of things to unlearn just the stories that were being told now as a father of three daughters myself um one of the things and the president of my company by the way is a woman and i'm always suggesting to everyone you have to ask people don't ask <laughs> but you write about in the book a nuance of asking is you know bad enough that i see people don't ask let alone women don't feel comfortable asking but you actually teach how to ask, which I think lowers the bar, so people feel more comfortable asking. Uh, when we teach them how to ask, and I never kind of took the step back to do that myself with my own daughters. So, what are some of the, the the tips in how we ask as women?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, women and men are now negotiating almost as much, and in, in that's re- really equalized. And men get it, you know, the raise twenty percent of the time, and women fifteen. But I tell women, if you don't ask, the answer is zero like the distance between zero and 15 is way more than 15 and 20. And so the question is not just asking, saying, Hey, can I have a raise?" but what's the distance between me and the next opportunity? You know, asking in a way that the answer isn't no, but it's actually bringing someone alongside you to be your partner, to actually achieve what you want. I think that's important too. And also like making your voice heard. I tell the story of, of mainly, Lee, May Lee Tom and Ellen Ochoa, you know, one is the, she, she had the highest um, non-elected official, like, uh, position in the legislature of California, May Lee, and she trained three of her own bosses before she raised her hand and said, hey, you know, she asked Willie Brown, what about me? Like, can I have this job? And, you know, he said, I thought you'd never ask. And so you think about that, you know, and Ellen Ochoa, who was the first, I think, first Hispanic woman in space, you know, she led the Johnson Space Center before that, you know, as the, her skip level manager, who's the director of the Johnson Space Center, asked her, hey, you know, who do you think would be good for my successor? And she said, well, what about me? And he's like, oh, you want the job? And so really like making yourself known, kind of showing your ambitions, people can help you get there once you signal that you're open to it.
0: I love that. And one of the other things that are predetermined is this idea of power. Um, And obviously there's physical differentiators in power I've come from the sports world and, you know, coming, you know, to college playing football at four, you know, five foot seven and 147 pounds. We define power in a differentiating way on the football field. But obviously growing up, once again, culturally and perception wise, there's always been a power struggle uh, for people of color, for women. Um, And that is never, I think, more indicative than in raising money. I'm in the the VC entrepreneurial space. And one of the things I tell my daughters all the time, like I cannot believe that 3% of the, of women and minorities get funded yeah. Three, when it's over 70% of our population, but only 3% of 70% and believe it or not, as we both know, women are doing better in college. They're doing better in graduate school. They're, you know, well-qualified to run companies as mine has run quite successfully. Why, why is it that this power shift is taking so long? And am I redefining power in the wrong direction by saying this is the type of power you're referring to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I talk a little bit about the stats in the, in the book, which is, you know, it was incredible. There the an article, and I think the title said something like, you know, women take a huge jump in the share of VC funding. You know, it went from 2% to 3% that year, <laughs> right. 2019. And I just remember thinking, well, that's a huge jump, but we still have such a long way to go. And I think it's something like, you know, in total are for women and mixed teams. So having a one woman on the leadership team. So, you know, that's the question, which is like, do, do, do all the 80% of the great ideas come to one group of people or do we actually, are we democratizing having great ideas? Are we actually, are, are we missing out on all the startups and opportunities and ideas that we're not funding because the unconscious bias is like, maybe, you know, we expect that most founding teams are men. And so I really think that that's part of it is really kind of thinking through how much unconscious bias women face. And then how do we actually undo that? How do we actually unpack it? I talk in the book a little bit about the stats where, you know, the hiring teams that said that, you know, they accepted they had some unconscious bias were much more likely to correct it and hire more diverse teams than those who said, you know, there is no bias. And I think part of it was, you know, I chapter one is written in such a way to depress you, to say that the playing field's not level, and that's okay. We can't fix everything tomorrow. It's not okay in that we want it this way. I wish I had a magic wand, but in the meantime, what do we do? And the rest of the book is to say, okay, what can we do on an individual basis? And what can we do together to really change the system that is that exists today? A lot of that system is not intentional. It's just built up over time. The expectations we have, the unconscious biases we have. And so a lot of the work that we have to do is really say, well, why is it that, you know, all women teams only get 3% of the funding? Why is it that mixed teams and all women teams get less than, you know, 80%? Why, you know, when the society is very different, why are, you know, founders of color less likely to get funding? And in really unpacking and saying it's not because the quality of the people are less good, that the ideas are less good, but because there's something in the system that's really holding us back. And if we think about unleashing all that opportunity, and so that is part of the book is to acknowledge that that's happening and then say, well, what can we do about it together?
0: Yeah, well, at least we're getting some data as well that really helps, which is the economic benefit by having equity and inclusion, that the numbers are outstanding, Uh, comparatively, of how economically more successful uh, equity, inclusion, and women leaders are. And so I think, you know, hopefully that type of data will motivate uh, in a different way uh, to get to, you know, some realm of equality. Um, But there's another aspect of power that I think is interesting, being a dad of of three daughters. Um, And I, you know, when I was young, my downfall, my ego was overselling back back-end selling, even manipulating, lying sometimes, a little bit of cheating even. And I will tell you, you know, God gives you what you want because I, you know, as my daughters are 23, 21, and 18, and they're applying to colleges and to jobs. And, you know, my oldest who graduated summa cum laude, you know, she's like, well, dad, I, I can't apply for that job. I said, why not? She says, well, you need three to five years experience. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, Okay, so tell them you have the experience. <laughs> you know, like, and I think I, in general, is it an energetic and genetic inheritance, I find that women don't take that leap to like overlook or even kind of, you know, explain away something and said, yeah, you know, like when I applied my first job, they wanted four years of litigation experience. And I told the guy, look, I was in MuCord and I've been selling for years and I don't need to be a litigator. I can sell. You know, and I tried to talk my way into it and I ended up with the best job in the world out of law school. Why don't women on general, you know, take this is, is this an energetic and genetic inheritance that they're too afraid to get, you know, put themselves out there as a self promoter.
1: Well, I think it's a little different. Right. The the you know, there was there was a study that said that, you know, women don't apply unless they meet 100 percent of the criteria, whereas men say, you know, like, well, are we willing to apply? But then they did a follow up study which said something like it's because women don't get the job when they don't have meet 100 percent of their criteria. So they don't want to waste their time and other people's time. And so I think wow. sometimes it's both it cuts both ways, right? What are we teaching women to do and what are we punishing them for? I do think women and people of color are punished more harshly when, you know, things are considered not fully truthful, that, you know, there's more risk to say, you know what, like, are you gonna be able to get your next job? And so it's just a little bit different. And I think you you just have to be, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful. And that said, I think that, you know, your daughter is saying, hey, I can apply, but I'm gonna to have to explain this. In a way that's completely truthful. Like here is here is my truth. Here is how I my experience aligns with three years of experience, or it's better than three years of experience because I've done these other things that are supplements. But I think sometimes we have these hard lines on these job requirements, and then we hope people will just check all the boxes off, but you know, it dissuades people who are kind of who have less opportunity to take risks because you know it's harder for them. And so I think we should create opportunities where it says, and I, I love there was a there was a job there was a company that actually writes at the bottom says even if you don't meet all the requirements, please try to apply, and maybe you know maybe this will be the right thing for you. And I love that that you know it doesn't have to be hard requirements. You want someone who can do the job, not check the boxes.
0: Absolutely, and I'm sure you utilize that in your company with the success that you're having. Um, another one is to uh, overcome a self-fulfilling prophecy that you have to do it by yourself. You you know, and I and I see that even in in my daughters that, you know, Dad, I I, you know, I know you're connected, Dad, but I've got to do this myself. You know, and within the context of their friend group, it's like, oh, your your dad's just going to get you, you know, an introduction or whatever. And this lie, I think, is detrimental uh, when we need help, no matter who we are am i misreading this lie of success that you have to do it alone?
1: Well i think sometimes you read these books about su- the success of somebody individual. Like you read these biographies and it seems like they've written everyone else out of the story. No one succeeds alone. And it's not always your dad, not everyone has a dad that can do that, but there are so many people who get so much help but they don't give they don't acknowledge the kind of privilege or opportunity they've been given. And i think by not acknowledging it, those who don't have those opportunities, don't have that support, feel like well does that mean that i'm not as good and so instead actually if we just up front said you know what i had tons of help and you know i i totally understand the succeeding alone i want that too but at the same time so much of life is actually succeeding through the help of others whether it's your mentors your manager whether it's your allies your circle like you know i talk about the four kinds of allies that make a huge difference in your career and those things don't happen by accident you know you had a mentor who turns into your sponsor who opens the door you know, I'm on a public company board because I had somebody who said, you know what, three years before that board opportunity came up, you know, Cheryl introduced me to Brad Smith and said, you'll be on his board someday, you know, someday he'll have an opening. And I said, first of all, as a director, so I wasn't even a VP at Facebook. <laughs> and second is that would be crazy that he would pick some random person to join his board. Three years later, I was a vice president. I headed up a big division and he had a board seat open and Cheryl said, I think you should apply. And she introduced me to him. I met with him and I joined the board. You know, something like that is, that, is that fair help? I don't know the answer to that. But at the same time, I would not be on the board, but for somebody who is able to help me and open that door. And I think that the part where if, if I didn't tell that story and I tell people, yeah, I did it all by myself, then someone else goes, well, does that mean I'm not worthy? But, you know, when we acknowledge the help we have, when we acknowledge the village of the support, it actually helps others who are in the same situation say, oh, I need somebody to help me. I can ask for help and it's okay. I hope we destigmatize that by actually telling people that most people who are successful had tons of help. And those who don't, you know, we should find ways to get them help.
0: Absolutely, I tell people all the time, the fastest way to get to where you wanna be is find someone that's already there and ask them for directions. And so many people that are already there okay. want to give those directions. Last, I wanna talk about leadership. Um, and this is true with men and women. Uh, that as we become leaders, uh, we almost prostitutize ourselves. We're afraid of losing who we truly are, that the bureaucracy, the politics, the power, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, and I was a CEO at a very young age of a very large company and you know, I was too, I was paralyzed by fear. I couldn't pretend like I didn't know what I didn't know from the people below me and especially my board, I was terrified to let them know that, you know, and they, and they are, you know, they're in their fifties, sixties, and seventies, even they knew I didn't know what I didn't know. And I should have been asking for help, but a great leader has to be able to know themselves and be able to not only ask for help, but know they're not going to lose their own values as being a leader. Um, How does that work within the context of being a woman today within the power uh, that you're taking back?
1: Well, I think part of it is, you know, if you actually look at the the reviews for men and women, you know, men get much more actionable feedback and women kind of get the niceties, but not the actions they need. And if people don't tell you the truth, how do you improve? If nobody gives you, and by the way, some people don't wanna hear the truth, but most people are hungering to know what they could be doing better. How can I be a better leader? But also the further you get along in your career, the less likely people wanna tell you the truth too, because they're afraid of the repercussions. So creating the environment where people can give you the truth that you can open up yourself to that truth, to say, you know, sit down with your board, for example, in your situation saying, Hey, here's one area you could help me with. People love to give advice because they they you're acknowledging their wisdom, but they also want to hear that, you know, they have something to contribute. And so I I think people are really afraid to ask, but actually it's a compliment to others to say, "I, you know, I defer to your wisdom, please give me your advice on X." Then they're delighted, and instead it's a gift to them and a gift to you. And so how do you actually kind of keep that feedback loop going and being really intentional for asking for feedback from both your manager or your peers, but also the, everyone around you? And then also having a group of people who aren't from your work, who kind of keep you honest, right? It's easy to kind of, you know, let it get to your head, but instead say, you know what, this is the group of people who've seen you at your best and your worst. They've seen you through the good times and your bad. And I call it in the book, your circle, right? Whether it's your church community. For me, it was our Bible study. You know, it could be, I've been in three lean-in groups and I'm still close to everybody there. Like people who tell you the truth in love, that is so important.
0: It is very important. And what an appropriate conversation on Book Lover Day here in the United States, August 9th, the release of your incredible book, Take Back Your Power. 10 New Rules for Women at Work. I'm thinking of two other books, uh, Ben Franklin's Autobiography, which I don't suggest anyone read. You're much better off reading Deb's book. Uh, But when you ask for help, you also become an investment in that person. And then also Stephen Birch's book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, uh, which I really uh, think is attributed to what we're discussing here. Deb Lou, an incredible executive CEO and president of Ancestry. But more importantly, her book launches today, August 9th. You've got to check it out take back your power 10 new rules for women at work thank you deb for joining me please come on to my other tv shows etc you're an incredible uh, wise soul that this more people women and men need to learn from you so thank you for your playbook to success
1: thank you so much for inviting me happy to come on anytime